Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the 4Press Podcast, presented by GolfWeek.com. I'm your host, David Dusek, and in this episode, my guest is three-time PGA Tour winner Scott Stallings. As you may have heard, Scott recently tested positive for the coronavirus, and he suspected he may have contracted it after the data from his whoop strap indicated some pretty unusual things. Scott's one of the more fitness-minded and analytically-minded golfers out there on the PGA Tour, and in the chat you're about to hear, Scott goes pretty deep into some of the data um, and some of the health and fitness terms that he uses may not be something you're up to speed on. So I tried to simplify and explain some of the things that he was talking about, but whether you're a gym rat or a range rat or someone who's just looking to stay healthy, avoid COVID-19, I think you're going to find this conversation really interesting. The Counter, an NFL podcast from USA Today Sports. Featuring For the Winds, Steven Ruiz and Chris Corman. I know people are like just assuming that this is an upgrade at the quarterback position, but I don't think we could say that for a fact. I'd say it's it's a downgrade. He never really had game-to-game impact just coming off the edge and destroying people that we thought when we saw his athleticism in college and at the combine. And- the Counter, diving deeper into the NFL with advanced stats, film study, and expert guests. This is The Counter. Listen and subscribe to The Counter on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And now making his first appearance on the Forward Press Podcast, I'd like to welcome three-time PGA Tour winner Scott Stallings to the Forward Press. Scott, how you doing? Happy holiday, pal. Hey, same to you, man. Thanks for having me. No, it's, it's really good. So, uh... Are you around Knoxville, Tennessee, which, as I understand it, is home for you, or where, where are you traveling these days? I am. I'm in Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, this is we're recording. This is my first uh, day back in uh, air quotes normal life. Uh, <laughs> I've been released back into the wild, and uh, my honey do list is uh, exceptionally long. With well, my family that's still quarantined. Uh, for a couple more days while I'm out uh, doing all the stuff that you miss when you're basically locked down for a <laughs> week and a half. So. so for people who may not be aware, by the time we're, we're going to be releasing this podcast, Scott, uh, there are a lot of reasons why I've wanted to have you on the podcast, but um, we're talking now because you recently tested positive for COVID-19. And by the time a lot of people, unfortunately, are going to be listening to this, sadly, about 15 or 16 million people may end up in the United States having contracted the virus before we sort of get into everything how are you feeling these days i feel great man uh, my symptoms were mild for uh you know probably 36 48 hours a uh, little congestion a little bit of runny nose had a cough for a little while but i mean to be honest uh based on you know kind of the news and what you see in here i was uh, pretty fortunate to have something that was very manageable um 
the doctor that I work with that works with a bunch of other guys on tour, he had uh, educated all of us very well as far as just not the, you know, trying to do the best thing you possibly can to avoid it, but the understanding of it, that it is, it is a virus and, mm-hmm. you know, there's a bunch of different ways to contract it. And as soon as you know, this is the protocol you kind of fall into. This is the way to isolate. This is the way to quarantine. This is the way to supplement. And, uh, I've got basically every letter vitamin <laughs> beside my, <laughs> beside my sink in my bathroom. And, uh, you know, just kind of a, not a matter of if, but when, and, you know, as soon as it happens, this is kind of what you do and this is the way you combat it. And, um, you know, so hats off to him for providing the information to, you know, get us to the spot of where we were. And, um, you know, kind of felt like I had a good idea of what I was getting myself into and, you know, had a great resource and all the people at loop to kind of help us, uh, evaluate the information. Cause honestly, if it, if it probably wasn't for them and the team that they have it to be able to ask the questions too and mm-hmm. and look at the information I, I would not have gotten tested i would not have uh, taken the steps necessary to uh you know kind of avoid being out in public when when honestly my symptoms were mild and i would have thought i just had just a typical like seasonal cold you know which is yeah. you know not uncommon yeah. this time of year certainly so we saw something like this happen earlier in the year nick watney tested positive after being tipped off he wears a whoop bracelet and saw that some of the information that it provided him with was consistent with somebody who may, while they may feel okay and be asymptomatic, may have contracted the COVID-19 virus and and may be, you know, not somebody who should be around other people. And he went ahead, got himself tested, and lo and behold, yes, he had contracted COVID. Um, Can you talk to people a little bit about your experience? Because as I understand it, it's, it's pretty similar to what Nick Watney had happened to him, yes? Yeah, the the difference in Nick's situation and mine is Nick had exposure and was not aware of it. I oh, knew that okay. I had been around someone that had tested that had been around a person that tested positive, mm-hmm. and I was actually signed up to go to Mexico, um, and knew that one of the guys that I had trained with the off week before Mexico had been around a person that tested positive, mm-hmm. and we had worked out and trained, and you know the the typical group of guys that I work out with. And just with, um, you know, out of abundance of caution of not wanting to be in a foreign country, sure, yeah, uh, with with any kind of risk like that, I withdrew, and then my buddy that I had trained with uh, went, started feeling bad, went and got tested, tested positive, and I said, well, I'll just kind of watch and watch, and I had like, a, um, you know, it's been well documented as far as the sinus surgery that I had, mm-hmm. so any kind of seasonal change, I'm pretty. Sub- uh, you, you can feel you know, it coming. I get it. I get it. Yeah, I can feel it coming. You know, the temperature of the week of Thanksgiving here in Tennessee changed about 40 degrees in 48 hours. That'll so do it. I had a lot of explanations as far as why I was feeling the way I was feeling, mm-hmm. but you know, which kind of go hand in hand with some of the symptoms of COVID. But what I, what was, I guess the tipping point for myself to go and be like, all right, this is different is, you know, I had, I had some, some changes in HRV, some change in respiratory rate and some changes in resting heart rate, but it all could make explained. I'd taken some allergy medicine, mm-hmm. you know, had uh, a Thanksgiving meal, you know, heavy training throughout the week. So all these things could kind of uh, allude to these certain metrics being off. Well, Sunday was my off day. 
my strain for you know those people that look into whoop data was just over an eight which for my average is about 14 so very low key family day had eight hours of sleep i woke up the next morning and before i start answering my journal questions which is an amazing feature that they have come up with in the last few months and especially for someone that travels like we we do on tour it's an invaluable tool to have um, as far as all the different variables that we come into account day in and day out. So to, to kind of get into it, I, I had all these reasons why I should have a great recovery. I felt fine. Mm-hmm. Um, everything I wake up, I have an 11 recovery score. Uh, that's out I've of a hundred, no, that's out of a hundred folks. <laughs> 11 is not yeah, good. I've got, I've got, I, I have no high strain. I've got no, uh, no other reason to why this should be. And then you start looking at the, uh, the metrics, low recovery score, which is, you know, kind of the end result, mm-hmm. but my respiratory rate went up about three and a half points from baseline of where it was, you know, the days previous, you can see a slight incline, but my baseline is like high 15, low 16, and it went up over 19 in a yep. day. Yep. Uh, my resting heart rate went up over 10 beats a minute. And my HRV dropped almost 40 points in a day. And that's after a, a low strain day, a, a, a day that should have alluded to a great recovery. Mm-hmm. And that it was immediately a wake up call, called my doctor, uh, gave me, and then we called the tour alert, alerted the, you know, the crew that they have as far as it handles all the COVID protocol and immediately went and found a place to do a, a rapid test went to the rapid test that afternoon, immediately came in, tested positive, uh, and then, yeah. you know, started the process of, of, you know, notifying the people that I'd been around, which, you know, thankfully was yeah. a relatively small circle. Yeah. And oddly enough, not, not a single person in that whole group of people that I'd been with tested positive, which, you know, kind of leaves people scratching their heads sure. with, you know, kind of how this is, uh, passed around. But, um, Let me just was very fortunate to have access. Let me interrupt you for one second just to sort of translate. For people who may not 100% be aware of some of the things that Scott's talking about that relate to WHOOP, respiratory rate is basically, uh, and I'm going to oversimplify some of these things just a little bit, but respiratory rate is basically how many times you breathe per minute when you're sleeping. And Correct. it's going to be something that is going to be fairly level, um, but varies from person to person. Generally speaking, people who are younger, people who are extremely fit, they're going to breathe less than somebody who's older, maybe somebody's less fit, but whatever you sort of are, wherever that number is, by and large, you're going to sway by a half a breath per night. It seems sort of a weird thing, but it's something that WHOOP has sort of discovered. And people who contract the coronavirus at being a respiratory disease, an ailment, your body fights to breathe and to bring in oxygen more. And what they have found over the course of really the spring and summer, uh, and I've had Will Ahmed, who's the CEO of and co-founder of Whoop on the podcast before to explain this, is that it, it their data showed that people will spike and see a dramatic increase, as Scott is sort of telling you about, in their uh, respiratory rate, even if they're asymptomatic, even if they feel fine, their body when they're sleeping is working harder to bring in the same amount of oxygen. So Scott is saying that he usually breathes you know, 15 or 16 times a minute when he's sleeping and all of a sudden it goes up to like, say, a 19, that is a big red flag. And that's something that we also saw with Nick and we've seen with you. And um, the other things he's talking about are, are also indicators of your level of recovery, how well your body is able to heal itself and get over the work 
that you did the the day before and the fitter you are and the things that you sort of do a lot of times avoiding alcohol can be it eating the right types of foods going through the proper routines can it can help you recover more effectively but just i wanted to make sure because that that re- respiratory rate is really the, sort of the the big flag right that that sort of tips people off to this and it's sort of unique to whoop yeah and respiratory rate is subjective kind of based on you know like you said ac- activity but what got me was like the trio of metrics uh yeah higher than normal resting heart rate, lower than normal HRV and spiked respiratory rate. That's kind of like the perfect scenario of like, Hey man, something's going on here. And, you know, kind of gives you a full understanding of, you know, of what's causing what, which is, uh, you know, a a very (laughs) odd sense to be at, but, uh, very, very thankful. I had the, the access and a little bit of an understanding. Whoop does an incredible job to provide, information not only our athletes but their members uh for us to learn to interpret you know kind of what we're looking at and kind of be able to make um informed decisions as far as what and any person that's worn it for any significant amount of time you start to learn really quick all right i do this this happens i do this this happens and you kind of start to understand the cause and effect for you know positives and negatives as far as your health and um uh, i was a direct a direct direct beneficiary of that information. Sorry, but how did testing positive affect you sort of psychologically? Because I don't know that if I were, I've been tested several times when, when I've traveled uh, to different PGA Tour events, I've been tested. I was tested at the US Open. I've been tested twice um, since I've been home. Thankfully, I've come back negative and was never really nervous that I was going to come back positive, but you never know. I mean, in this case, it's something as you're pointing out, you don't necessarily feel it. Um you know, I, I never had any problem with it, but how did sort of having somebody tell you, even if you may have suspected it, yes, you, you have tested positive. What went through your mind at that point and how did that sort of work its way through your, through your, through your mind? Um, it was interesting. You brought up Nick Watney in Bermuda. I had dinner with him one night and he kind of, it was just him and I, and we, we, he gave me like the full scenario, like, man, take me through the, two week process of you being the first person to test positive yeah. on tour and what that was like. And, um, he said, you know, a, a little bit, he got in his own head a few days. And, and I, I guess for a little bit, I did like, I'm not a napper. I'm not a guy that like, I want to lay down to any chance I get. Like I, I like to get after it in the gym. I, I like to, you know, push myself and, you know, maybe for the first, you know, 48 hours is a little bit like, Oh, I'm positive. I should feel like this. I should do that. And, you know, there's probably a little bit of that. And, uh, you know, you try to find silver linings in every and all situation that you come in contact with, but, uh, I'm normally not one to take time off, uh, from training and or practicing and knowing that I had the, you know, basically forced time quarantine, uh, you know, is not normally something that I would do out of the gym or this, so it's kind of utilize as much as I possibly can. I took more naps in my quarantine time, mm-hmm. uh, and my sleep numbers were <laughs> by far the, the highest they've ever been. I increased my time in bed over the course of the, you know, 10 days by over an hour. I'm not going to say that I'm PJ tour level to, at napping, of, but I'm corn, I'm corn fairy level at napping for sure. I, I <laughs> can really get after it with the pillow and the, and the covers. I, uh, I'm I'm good at that stuff. It's interesting to hear that you you're not somebody who who does that. 
Yeah, it's just you know trying to do things that I w- I know I wouldn't typically do, and and I think you know as a golfer you're always trying to you know understand a competitive environment and especially playing an individual sport and trying to pick up little opportunities to gain any kind of advantage. So all right, this is the situation that I'm in. Uh, you know, I'm not really going to be working out. Yeah, I did a bunch of you know stretching, a bunch of mobility, and try to utilize a different part. Um, and improve upon areas that I could probably utilize and uh, flexibility is something that I can always improve upon. So I did so different by that. I rested, enjoyed time at home with my family. We just got a dog, uh, <laughs> walked around, um, you know, did all this stuff and, you know, golf and fitness and everything wasn't necessarily as a bigger priority as far as just making use of the time that we had and, and, you know, making the best out of it. And I mean, I don't want that to sound cliche or kind of hokey, but I mean, that's truly the attitude we went into it with it. And this is the situation we're presented with ourselves and, you know, the kind of the attitude and effort that we put towards dealing with it. And, you know, is going to kind of be the end result. And, you know, that's kind of how we went about it. What did your family and what was your wife's sort of reaction? You come home or you, you call her up. Yep. I'm, I'm positive on this test. What, what, what then follows after that? We, we had already started that morning. As soon as I woke up in my situation, we needed to confirm it, but we weren't going to operate as if like this pie in the sky. Oh, it's mm-hmm. just a fluke. It's like, no, you know, I pay enough attention to this device uh, and, and, and put as much time and effort into understanding to the whoop to the fullest extent of what it could be that if it's not this, we have something to really be worried about, <laughs> you know, yeah. it, it, we're, you know, kind of to the point of like, we're expecting that it's COVID, but if it's not, then you have something seriously wrong <laughs> Yeah, because there's no, there, there's no other reason that it should be something other than not this. And that was kind of the attitude we had. I left the house, um, man, hats off to the medical workers and staff. I know, people all across the country continue to, you know, rave and support for the people that are on the front lines. But just the, the testing person that, that did me, I was like her 50th person of the day. Wow. wow. And, and I mean, she's just subjected to that. And it was kind of the reality of, you know, living in the bubble on tour, you know, we sit there, we do the testing protocol and, you know, having to wait for your results for like an hour and a half is like a, a long day, but to, to go and actually be with it and kind of face it head on in the public was kind of an eye opening experience as well. So I'd be, you know, not be doing my due diligence to not take the time to thank people who are actually dealing with that on a day in day out basis. Cause we truly could not be in the situation that we are without people willing to take the risk and do that. So, yeah. uh, yeah. my lady that tested me, uh, thank you. And she was, um, you know, she was very kind and patient as far as explaining the process. But when I had left my house, I was already, we were already in the same protocol that our doctor had kind of got us into. Hey, if you're not, then, you know, we're going to deal with it, but we're going to deal with the expectation that sure. you are. We're going to go with what we know, not what we hope. And, um, um, just do the right thing at that point. Just, just I, making sure that I mean, you, you've got to assume the worst and then be pleased if it's not. You're in sort of a unique situation yeah. that that if it was not, then there's something else to deal with. But at least you're doing the right thing by your family and everybody else around you. That if if you were, and it turns out you were, then then you're not putting anybody else at risk unnecessarily, which is uh-huh. which is great. And in some ways, as you're sort of talking about the the people who are doing the testing and who are working through those things. It's in some ways a pity that it takes a pandemic for us to maybe appreciate those kind of folks as much as, you know, we obviously do now. And we certainly do. And, it, and I will second that, that 
you know, the, they're doing tireless work. You can see it on the news all the time, the fatigue in the voice and in the eyes of people sometimes when they're being interviewed on television about working under these kind of conditions. It's, it's unbelievable that, that they're able to do what they do. Um, hats off and thank you. Thank you very, very much. Um, for people who may not be aware, and I don't know how they wouldn't be aware of your story, you weren't always as health and fitness conscious as, as you were. Would you uh, would you tell people sort of what happened? If I'm not mistaken, uh, and you and I have talked about this a couple times, um, it was a trip to UCLA several years ago that was sort of the the catalyst or the tipping point, if I'm not mistaken, that, that sort of got you to be a lot more aware, a lot more uh, conscientious about your fitness. Is that right? Am I remembering that right? Yeah, I mean, there was a myriad of things, but you've definitely read Malcolm Gladwell as well. I feel like any person that's done any type of reading or any literary that's read any Malcolm Gladwell used like the trigger words that he <laughs> uses in all his writing. You know, anyone's read Tipping Point, anyone's read 10,000 Hours, yeah. uh, anyone, like you start to, and uh, I mean, I was a perfect example of a lot of the things that he writes about. Um, and uh, I was not always super health conscious. Uh, you know, I had a, a, a longer story than we have time for, but basically the understanding of, I knew that I had some stuff going on, ended up finding a guy at UCLA who is an endocrinologist that, you know, worked with kind of very unique set of circumstances, uh, was trying to help evaluate just a lot of different things. Sure. And through the process kind of found out I had opened like Pandora's box of all these little things that were all taking place all at one time that by themselves were not overly difficult to deal with, but to make a long story short, all of them were happening at once. Mm. And a lot of it, you know, you don't really find out all of it until you try to make a change. And, you know, I was the, the perfect scenario, uh, was able to kind of find a lot of good people come around me, help point me in the right direction, had uh, major uh, reconstructive sinus surgery at the end of 2015. Mm. And to be honest, of all the things that I've done with whoop, and everything with whenever my data is shown is I get the, especially for someone that would consider themselves in, in uh, pretty significantly good cardiovascular health. Mm -hmm. uh, why my respiratory rate is so high compared to my, my VO2, all these other things. And it is directly because of the sinus surgery that I had and my ability of just how I breathe of just having such poor mechanics for such a long time. And almost like I base uh, panic breathe my whole life. Wow. <laughs> and I, I, I get that question. Anytime I, I put a picture of my sleep score or anything like that on Instagram or Twitter or anything, I get 10 direct messages, so man, high. like, you know, why, why is your respiratory rate so high? And yeah, you know, a lot of it's individual, but it a hundred percent is tied to that surgery and just kind of how, which is odd because when I get in a, you know, a higher heart rate, I almost breathe better. Mm. Like my lower, like my, my average resting heart rates in the, you know, low forties, high thirties, you know, when I've been training and running pretty good, but for the most part, you know, which is great, but my respiratory rate is, is kind of, it throws people off because of the way that I do breathe. I'm, I'm working on it, working on my rib positioning constantly, uh, and that's been a great part of being home as well. I mean, my so, average was just over 16 and 
uh, in the last week or so, I've got it down almost to the baseline of uh, the low 15s in you know 10 days. So there's more to breathing so, just, than just like taking it. it in and taking it out. I, I I've I've heard people tell me about like different things. If you're meditating, breathing in different ways, thinking about expanding your rib cage, and and I'm not going to say I don't buy in and stuff like that, but. But breathing is pretty much an in and out kind of a thing, right? Like I, I will sometimes consciously try and slow my breathing. Um, if if I'm doing a sport kind of a thing to try and lower my heart rate, calm myself down, not get too amped up, or sometimes just the opposite. If if I'm feeling a little bit, you know, like I'm lethargic or sleepwalking through a round of golf, or I play a lot of tennis and I'm just not. I, I know from past experience. So I played tennis in college, and I know from wearing heart rate monitors during matches that I would play the best the quality of my play would be best at a heart rate of between 125 and about 140 beats a minute. And if I'm serving, so I get to start the point, I don't start a point above 130. I I will lower it down and lower it down. And that's just sort of, and I know it will go up significantly if it's a long grinder of a point. You you think about the way that you breathe, just whether you're working out or, or, or all the time? Uh... Yeah, I mean, I do a little bit better job on the golf course and a little bit better when we're training. Uh, one of my best friends is a lightweight 155 UFC fighter. And, I mean, they're literally out there for five minutes trying to kill each other, and he gets a minute to recover. So, yeah. I mean, those guys are truly yeah. the best in the world as far as trying to maximize the fullest extent of time. Yeah, And a lot of the breathing stuff that I, l- I learned from him – and, you know, trying to understand how to, like, breathe your way through exercises and, you know, uncomfortable situations. By no means is golf is someone trying to punch me in the face. But, I mean, there are pressure situations, sure. that, you know, different kind of sure. ideas of when you're playing and practicing and, and and dealing with different things. But from going of all the stuff that I learned from my surgery to, to everything that goes around it, like – uh, I mean, it, it made a tremendous impact not only on my fitness and health, but just life in general of the ability to breathe properly. And I can do it, but it's like a, it's not voluntary or involuntary. Like I have to make myself do it. Think about it, sure. And uh, there's a bu- there's there's a bunch of different ways to go about it. Um, and uh, it, I almost like gamify it now to try to figure out how to you know move it up and down. And um, <laughs> there's a bunch of guys that say like controlled hyperventilation. Um, and, uh, if someone didn't know, if someone didn't know what you were doing, uh, and they would think you're having like a complete panic attack, uh, by yourself, which is, uh, an odd, uh, set of circumstances to say the least, which is pretty funny. Explain to me how you got started in golf. If I understand correctly, and I've done a little bit of research that you, you played lots of sports when you were young, but seeing Tiger Woods win in 97 at the masters, I think you were about 12 or so made golf sort of the sport. How, how did you first get into the game? Yeah, I mean, I, I, golf was always something I did in between seasons. And, you know, I, uh, baseball, basketball, and soccer were – baseball being my, my first love. And um, golf was kind of something I did in the interim. And then Tiger comes on the scene and wins in 97. And, uh, I mean, it changed my life forever. And um, I, I wanted to pursue – golf at high level I was by no means uh the best sport that I was you know playing at the time but it was something that I had a strong passion about mm-hmm. made a hole in one uh in that same time period and then I was just <laughs> like anyone that makes a hole in one or has that golf high it's like all right I'm done I'm I'm focusing on this <laughs> and um 
uh, you know, kind of fell in love with it and uh, wanted to pursue it and uh, had a bunch of really good people come along from my parents uh, to coaches all along the way. And then, you know, feel very fortunate to now I've been on the PGA Tour for uh, now I'm in my 11th year and it's all become pretty surreal for I, sure. I, I would imagine. Uh, how is this experience that you've had dealing with COVID, how will that potentially change how you look forward to your next PGA Tour season? I mean, the, two, the 2020 you know, portion of the calendar is now done, obviously. We, we've got a break. Um, what are you thinking? How will this experience affect the way that you travel and go about working in 2021? Well, with the and it's it's an ever changing situation. The the tour has done an incredible job as providing you know great great information for us to understand kind of the ebbs and flows of the CDC and you know working really well with local health officials every place we play. I've I've not been in a situation where I felt unsafe, um, you know anywhere that we've played. Um, and you know hats off to Jay and all, everyone that works for the tour for providing us an opportunity to play. Uh, it's arguable to say the tour and professional sports has done better than anybody uh, in terms of testing and especially with the variables that we deal with. But also we have an incredible advantage that we do play a sport that's outside. We have a lot of space and, you know, so it's arguable both ways. But in the in my life in general is is something that I, I, I remember March 14th very well. Uh, being in the players, getting a text at 10.05 at night with my wife. We're laying in bed, and the text comes in as far as we're done. And mm -hmm. just the, the whole reality of, of what that looks like to come full circle. And now I've played – I don't know how many events I ended up playing. It seems a lot. <laughs> but to look at it and be very thankful for the, the team that they have in place to getting us now. And now testing positive uh, – I guess if there is a silver lining with the tour, uh, they have a, you're not tested for 90 days is right now that could get less. It could get more, uh, cause you can continue to test positive for a long period of time. I know one player tested positive for up to 70 days. Jeez. Um, and so there's a lot of things to deal with, but I know the tour is going to not do anything to put a player or other players at risk. Sure. Um, as, as minimal, as minimal as they possibly can. And, uh, you know, very thankful for the, the team that they have in place. But uh, I don't know if you just – if I am going to change anything the way I'm doing, I'm still going to be respectful to the, the health codes of where we play and where mm -hmm. we practice and, and, you know, when we travel and everything. But, um, you know, it, it's definitely a unique experience to kind of be on one side and then all of a sudden you test positive and, like, a little bit of your mind frame does just change a little bit as far as – you know, you've been to a tour event, you understand what the testing protocol looks like. And just, you know, there's that kind of waiting game. And as far as what's, you know, I'm, I'm going to be able to avoid that for, for at least a few weeks on tour, as far as we get to the West coast and, um, you know, but, uh, I, you know, it'll, it'll be a unique experience. My first I'm event sure. will be Palm, uh, Palm Springs at American express. And, um, uh, I'll definitely be itching and be ready to go and, and be excited to play again. Well, let's let's do a little quick quiz time here before I let you go. Um, how much golf do you watch when you're not playing? Are you somebody who totally isolates himself, gets away from golf, or do you do you sort of pay attention to what's going on out there? Majors and if one of my friends is playing good. That's it. Okay. Um, in your opinion, the most impressive win this season, who had the most impressive win? Uh, I played Boston and 30 under on that golf course. Uh, just Dustin playing the way that he did was incredible. I mean, there were a lot of good scores uh, throughout the course of the week. Yeah. But 
when I played, like you can kind of tell, I mean, there's, all right, man, there's going to be some good scores. It's going to be this, it's going to be that. But I, I mean, he's done a lot of things that a lot of people don't see, but I walking off and be like, I did not see that. So yeah, I, I, <laughs> and, I was, I was there that week and it was the, the thing that I will remember, obviously he played out of his head. I remember seeing Scotty Scheffler go out and shoot 59 and there were maybe a dozen of us that were around the green, a couple volunteers and people came out there. DJ's right behind him and we're thinking, my God, the way he's playing, he could shoot 56 today. And he just went out and torched yeah. the front and it was the most ho-hum 59 followed by a 60 day. Do you think in some ways, looking back on that particular event, the way that DJ played, that he almost made it look too easy? Do people appreciate how well he was really playing? No, I, I don't think people appreciate it. But I think the idea of, and you know, this is not a, a, a journalism jab at all, because, I mean, there's just so few of you guys that have access to everything that we do out there. Mm -hmm. When, you know, the fans and, and just the interaction of that, I mean, I played with a guy in Connecticut that made a hole in one and no one clapped. <laughs> yeah. But like the, the, the fan side of it, you know, would kind of bring a little bit of the hype and excitement to it. Um, but I mean, I remember being there when Scotty shot 59 on that day yep. and literally like, it was like, Oh man, great, great playing. Well, and, and like, it, it just kind of, uh, the uh, the excitement of it and and I think the media and everything does the everything they possibly can but the the fan excitement and, and the fan engagement that's something that you would hear no matter what part of the golf course that you were on for sure and everyone asked me on tour like what's the loudest thing you've ever heard on the golf course and I was on number 12 at Augusta in 2012 when Louie made a number two, uh, made a two on number two yep. at Augusta. Yep. Yep. And I was playing with Jeff Ogilvy, and that's when they do the, you know, the, the scoreboards by hand. Mm -hmm. And that scoreboard on 11 is as far away from number two as you can get. And to hear the wave of noise that came from number two green and kind of passed through the golf course. To be, I have backed off the 12th tee at Augusta plenty of times <laughs> for a myriad of reasons, but never in my life based off of noise to that extent. I, and I, to be yeah. literally as far away from number two as you can get and to have to back off as they put his score on this. Like, that, if that happened this year with no fans, there would have been some excitement, but nowhere near the effect of affecting the entire property so and i think with, yeah. with fans there that definitely you would have seen things that i mean it'd have been everywhere and i think that have been and that's the unfortunate side of of not having fans and yeah. people like that at the golf course because that's something that that w people would have known everywhere which yeah. have been super cool you mentioned you mentioned hartford and such like that as you know there are plenty of houses that are ringing around that property at tpc river highlands that's my home game and and so i love going up there and playing and when you then talk about Scheffler shooting the 59 and DJ it there there are no houses there's nobody on the property at TPC Boston I, I was there for this year and it was bizarre because on Saturday Rory was playing with Tiger so I go out early with and, and with those guys because they went out early in the morning and there were two other media guys and me and these two guys who were, you know, Tiger Woods, arguably the greatest player of all time. Rory, one of the best players of his generation of players. I'm like, this, this grouping would be swamped if we were under normal circumstances. And there were maybe, Scott, maybe like a dozen people 
that were out there. I mean, volunteers would give a little clap, and I'm like, this is just bizarre. There were two kids in lawn chairs that that were there, of course, and one of them had to yell out, you the man, Tiger. And there was a police officer who, you know, they were the only two spectators that I saw the entire time because there are no houses on the property. It was eerily quiet and really kind of bizarre. What, um, what was the most impressive round that you witnessed this year? Uh, like in person, man, uh, I can go back. Uh, I would have to go back in my brain and calculate because the season is all over the place. Um, the most impressive, not in a good way, uh, the third round at RSM, I had my highest uh, career strokes game putting uh, to the negative, oh, no. which was uh, <laughs> impressive in its own right to just walk <laughs> off and be like, uh, what happened? <laughs> so I'm impressed you can I, laugh about it. it uh, yeah, I, I can definitely laugh about it. I've got a good sense of humor. I've done this long enough to know that you have some very, very strange days, but mm-hmm. uh, we're on our – a group thread with a bunch of guys on tour and you know if a guy does something good or a guy does something bad it kind of like there's no place to hide when it comes to strokes gain mm-hmm. and uh i was uh, a butt of a lot of jokes for uh, a good three or four days after that and um i don't know if that's as impressive as it is sad but uh that's the one thing that sticks in my mind and some of those text messages will never see the light of day but <laughs> i've literally at my own expense, that's probably the hardest I've laughed in a long time. And I've got a bunch of idiot friends on tour that we all like to give each other a hard time. Excellent. What's What was your best round this year? Uh, I 64, I believe. Um, well, I don't even, to be honest with you, Scott, I don't even care about the score. What's the round that you look back and you're like, yeah, that was that was good golf. Maybe it was the 64, but but sometimes there's rounds where you're like, I just battled the hell out of this thing today and it's 68 and people aren't going to like, that was, that was the good stuff. Uh, I was in a weird spot when we came back. I'd only played 10 tournaments uh, before we got shut down and I, uh, players was going to be my first of 11 out of 13. So that was going to be a big chunk of my schedule. So I was a hundred and like 60 something in FedEx when we came back and started playing. My first event was Hilton head and I made every cut after quarantine and i ended up going out to reno basically needing you know to play halfway decent the last two events of the year to make the playoffs and knowing what we know now as far as the seedings and and how they're doing with you know tournament participation everything finishing the top 25 was a big deal and i was in a decent spot after three rounds at reno and i went out uh i didn't make a bogey the final day end up burning 16 and 18 to I can't even remember what I shot score wise, but I birdied 18 to end up finishing fifth by myself and coming off of, you know, of not really being in that situation for that period of time and coming back is probably the round that sticks out to the, the most to me mm-hmm. just because it solidified my spot inside the 125 and, and to go through that situation. I mean, I was, I guess I was kind of close to winning, but not really. Uh, just go out and have a good day and everything kind of takes care of itself. But that's probably the round that I stick back in my head as far as like, yes, like I did what I needed to do. I put myself in that situation. I went out there and executed. That's great. What was the best shot you hit this year? Do you remember one shot that that stands out above the others? Probably not a putt. Uh, uh, Maybe, (laughs) maybe that, 
probably the putt on, on 18 right there is a downhill right to that's left or about 12 feet or so. And, um, you know, that's probably the one that, that sticks out the most. My caddy does a little bit better job as far as re- remembering some of that stuff than I do. Mm-hmm. I just, I guess when you do it, you, not that it, it doesn't mean anything, but I'm trying to move on to the next, the one, next one and not sure. let one shot affect the next. So, mm-hmm. you know, the best thing a golfer can have is a short memory. And mm-hmm. I asked my wife, I definitely have one of those. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Last one then for me, what tournament would you like to win the most? What's the, what's the one that's above all others on your bucket list? The masters. Yeah, that's the that's the answer, isn't it? I mean, I can I get that some guys for yeah. the it's the U.S. Open, uh, for some international players, I believe them sincerely when they were telling me like I want to win the Open Championship, but like there is a right answer to this, and um, no, all, all due respect to the other ones, uh, it's the Masters. How many Masters have you played at this point? Twenty twelve and twenty fourteen. Bubba was giving me a hard time. He's like, "Man, you need to qualify for the Masters again. I only <laughs> win the ones you play." <laughs> Perfect. Um, what's what's on your holiday gift list? What do you want? What are you looking for this year? Nothing, man. Time with my kids and and family and and enjoying. Like we built a house last June, and you know, kind of made put our foot in the sand as far as we don't care who comes, but we're not going anywhere for the holidays. This is where we want to spend our time. Kind of built a house out in the woods in East Tennessee, and uh, this is my favorite time of year. I've got two young kids, a a seven year old son, a four year old daughter, so it's a pretty exciting time for us. And and they're kind of understanding and you know, kind of give back to the community that has given us a lot of opportunity here in Knoxville and, well, uh, you know, go a little family vacation, uh, right after Christmas and then be ready to start going back, uh, second week of January. When you, when you get back there and you're going to be on a plane, you've got a little bit of time to kill. Um, you were dropping the Malcolm Gladwell stuff, which I like, do like to really Gladwell. Um, there is a book that you should definitely pick up called The Sports Gene by a guy named David Epstein. And if you haven't read it yet, I think you will find it absolutely fascinating. I think that everybody who likes sports um, and the science behind sport will find it fascinating. So grab yourself a copy of The Sports Gene, G-E-N-E. Um, yeah, it's it's not a new book. You'll be able to pick it up on paperback. It's quickie. You'll you'll devour it and then let me know what you think of it. It's uh, It's great. You'll love it. Well, I appreciate it, man. I'll definitely check it out. I'm always looking for something like that. Perfect. Listen, Scott, be well. Have a great holiday season. We'll look forward to seeing you out there on the PGA Tour in 2021. All the best. Thank you, David, for having me. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.